Dear Father, we just thank you so much for another evening in which we get to come before you, study your word, and fellowship with each other. We just pray that you just keep the teaching and the discussion in a way that brings edification to all. And we just pray that you just bless us as we come before you and want to know more about you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. I hope everyone made it okay. This morning the roads were pretty icy. I remember seeing a uh, notice at the beginning of the week, I think it was Monday, telling us, oh, Cheyenne won't get hit by this snowstorm. We'll see one, maybe two inches at most. And those are usually famous last words. Up where we're at in Happy Jack, we got dumped on pretty good. And, uh, and it's always fun there, too, because we got to dodge the semis that are trying to, they think to get around the I-80 closure, they go down Happy Jack, and they won't run into a closure on the other end of Happy Jack at that rest area. And so it's always a night, or always an icy nightmare out there. But uh, this evening, we're going to be talking or discussing Deuteronomy chapter 18. And it's going to continue in the subject of leadership that uh, Cody handled last week where he, he focused on the king. And now we're going to get into the Levitical tribe and then also into Moses' replacement. And just to kind of start us off as you guys are opening up to Deuteronomy 18... When we're talking about those that are called to leadership, especially in ministry, there's usually three things, and you can find these pretty evident within the New Testament, but uh, they're a little bit more assumed in the Old Testament, we'll discuss why here in a second, but there's usually three things that you've got to look for, three attributes. The first one is the call, and for us New Testament Christian, the calling is usually demonstrated through gifts. So the gift of teaching, gift of mercy or works, and the various gifts of the Holy Spirit. If someone is gifted, that usually constitute or points them in the direction of the ministry that they're called into. But that's not where it ends, and I think a lot of people will stop it right there. There's also the aspect of qualifications. Qualifications are laid out in passages such as Titus 1, Titus 1 5 through 9, First Timothy talks about it, First Peter talks about it, and you usually see them as the descriptions of an elder, but that's usually the qualifications that have to be matched up with the call before someone is ready for leadership. But then, on top of that, there's usually a sending out. The church either gets up as a congregation and prays for their leader, or they're sending out someone to another congregation or to start another congregation, but there's usually some form of formal sending out that takes place. And we see those here with the Levitical priesthood as well. It's just all compressed down into basically a birthright. That birthright into the Levitical tribe was their call. The qualification was their upbringing. They were basically raised into the temple ministry and then the sending out was, as the country or as the nation needed it, they would go out into and serve amongst various communities. Or they had their own private communities, as we'll see next week and as we talked about before, with the cities of refuge. But that being said, 
What I think a lot of us get hung up on, especially with these leaders, is that anything, I should say the call and the qualification is really the only standard we have to judge a leader by. And especially in our modern day church, we see a lot of focus on extracurricular things like politics or presentation. And Sean even talked about this, I want to say two Sundays ago in, uh, when he went through 2 Corinthians on how we tend to place a larger emphasis on, I don't know if ancillary is the right word, but kind of extra qualifications instead of the straightforward general call qualification sending out that is presented in scripture. And so when we get into Deuteronomy 18, we see this first part here where it talks about the Levites that once the call and once the qualification are recognized, there is an obligation from the people and from leaders to recognize and to, to assist in that. And so we'll start in 18.1. It says, The Levitical priest, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offering as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is the inheritance as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people. From those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all of Israel, where he lives, and he may come when he desires to the place that the Lord will choose, and the ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. Now this section right here is basically one of the best sections of the Old Testament because we are provided in the New Testament in an interpretation of what's being said here and how that applies to us today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 13 through 14, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so we see basically a New Testament interpretation of this Old Testament practice where the people were obligated to provide for their leaders. But notice what's not said here in these verses. There isn't a long list of exclusionary details where it says, you will provide and you will follow this leader if this person has, again, we'll bring up politics. That seems to be a big one why people leave churches now. Or if this person makes a mistake one Sunday. There, there's not a long list of reasons where the Israelites could back out of this provision for the Levitical priesthood. 
And in fact, if we look at verse 5, we see a very interesting kind of portion that's often overread here. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord. Him and his sons are all time. And I think we lose sight of that idea when we're looking at our ministers who are ministering the gospel to us was that this wasn't a congregational choosing. This wasn't a elder's vote. This wasn't a any other way that you can see. I've, I've heard of congregational fellowships where they'll, where they'll vote like in a democratic fashion. I've heard of people still using like the, uh, kind of like the way they just, or they replaced Judas in Acts where they were drawing straws, doing something like that, casting lots almost to find out who to replace. At the end of the day, these ministers were chosen by God. And that is the determiner. Determiner, is that a right word? He determines who is going to serve and who isn't going to serve. Now again, we find validation in that in the calling and we find validation in that in the qualifications. But God is the final authority on who and where these people are going to go and when they're going to come from. And again, as long as they met the qualifications, they were to be provided for. And we see that in the first few verses But then on the other side, or the flip side of the coin, when we start looking at verses 6 through 8, we see that when these Levites, who met the call and who met the qualification, were to go to the temple of the Lord, when they showed up, they were to be put to work and they were to be provided for. And even provided for without regard to there's this word patrimony here. I don't know exactly what your versions will say. I've seen patrimony. I've seen the NET talks about like an inheritance. We don't know exactly what the Hebrew word for patrimony or translated as patrimony here means. But it basically means some form of extra income. More than likely, it was a gift from the father to the son, um, either as an inheritance or maybe as a rite of passage when he became to minister on his own and go out on his own. It was something that was provided for him here. But either way, even in regards to the money that that brought in, that had nothing to do with the provision he was supposed to receive when he went into the temple and ministered to the Lord. And it says that he could go whenever he desired. Whenever he desired, when he showed up to the temple in Jerusalem, They were to find work for him and make sure he wouldn't be left out in the cold. And this mainly, I think, was put out there for to prevent like a rivalry situation. We see later in the time of uh, when John the Baptist is born in Luke with uh, his father, Zechariah, they were actually drawing lots to go see who would do the temple service in the ministry. And basically, it was supposed to be a shared service so these people could come and work within the temple. But also, it prevented one group from going into the temple and basically being the gatekeepers at that point, which is something Israel struggled with all through its history. Once the temple was established and built, you had different sects that would come in, and basically, it was their version of politics. 
whoever was in charge at the time, whoever became the high priest, would run that area, and then his kind of following would come in and control the temple worship and the temple practices. And I think this here, too, was to prevent that, was that, that freedom for any Levite to come in and, and find work and all that prevented people from getting too stale in the ministry there in Jerusalem, but it also prevented them from excluding certain people or certain people types from being able to perform the ministry in which they were called to do. And so, but you see that the calling and the qualifications once recognized was enough for people to be recognized as leaders. And I think as a national church, I would say, as an American church, we need to kind of remember this idea because I think sometimes we put too much pressure, we put too many extra or an ancillary kind of rules and regulations on the pastors that are called up here to serve. And then when they don't meet these personal standards that we develop, we'll just go find one that does. When in actuality, the person, no matter which church you're going to, if they're meeting those qualifications, if you can open up Titus, Timothy, Peter, and you can, you can identify where these people are meeting these qualifications, I would also throw in the fruit of the Spirit too just because that's something that Jesus said was his judge, you'll, you will know them by their fruits. I would throw in the fruit of the Spirit too, but if, you can, if they meet those qualifications, maybe then we should be more willing to sit and listen to what they got to say than to sit and criticize what they have to say. And maybe we shouldn't be putting a pressure on these people to push a certain agenda beyond what they feel called by the Holy Spirit to push, if that makes sense. So then moving on into verse 9, we get into abominable practices. And this can kind of seem, again, a little bit out of place compared to we got a passage on leadership in the Levites, and then we're going to finish off the chapter with a passage on leadership through the new prophet. And then we have kind of an abominable practices thing thrown in here in the middle um, what I want you to notice is that the chapter ends with Moses reminding the people he is going to die soon and he is going to be replaced. And so Israel is coming up on a time of uncertainty. And that time of uncertainty, if anyone knows that has been in basically in a job or been in the military and you've basically lost leadership suddenly, you realize that some people can go off the rails a little bit. And in that time of uncertainty, people may be wondering what they are expecting or what God is expecting of them. And as a result, they may be pursuing various methods in which we'll read here. Verse 9, it says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Remember, abominable equals or abominable means a unworthy religious practice. When we see this in Deuteronomy, we see the word abominable. It means 
practicing worship in a way that is unworthy or unacceptable to God. So you learn to follow these abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which are about to dispo- or which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And so, this is like an introductory kind of passage into I will bring you up a prophet. You don't need to do all these things to get to know me as God because I'm going to bring you up a prophet. And we'll get to that in a second. But there's a strong sense here of God's people being distinct in their worship practices from those that are surrounding them. And in fact, the worship practices of those around them are their very reason for which they're being judged. And again... We've talked about this in in 2 Corinthians. We've talked about this in Deuteronomy previously. This seems to be a theme that keeps coming up in Scripture. But as temples of God, as the people of God, if you want to relate to Israel, there's a world around us that finds their truth and finds their pleasure and finds their joy in certain aspects. And then there's us who are supposed to be distinct. And especially in our worship practices, we shouldn't be allowing that to bleed through. And we've seen this a lot, especially in the early 2000s with the seeker-sensitive church. We spent a lot of time putting ourselves out there as a, hey, look, we're not so bad. We're not Bible thumpers. We're not going to judge you. Look, we, we do the same thing we you do. We just do it to a lesser degree. And so there's nothing really you have to change in your life to come in here to be a Christian. You just have to not do it so severely. And so we invited all these people in there because we just wanted to show everyone, hey, we're just normal. We're We're just like you, just like me and you. We're all the same. And then when they would get into the church, it became a revolving door church because they get in, they sit down, and they get convicted of the things in their lives, and that leads to a confusion. Wait a minute. Why do I feel guilty for this if it's just me being a normal person and everyone's practicing? Why do I feel trouble with this? And so we end up painting God as an individual in which we're all trying to get to know better. That's the whole point of this whole practice right here, of coming in, studying the Bible, praying together, worshiping together. We're all trying to get to know God better. And then we introduce him in a way... That is what Deuteronomy would call abominable. And then people end up becoming hurt or confused because the God they come to know wasn't the God they were told about, if that makes sense. And so Moses is reminding the Israelites here, you are going to be distinct. 
even when you've got times of uncertainty coming up, you're not going to look like the world around you. You're not going to blend in. He lists some pretty serious worship practices like child sacrifice, which unfortunately we'll see in a, in a couple books Israel falls right into. They're going to be right there with them. But then we also see just minor things like fortune telling and divining. I don't want to call that minor, but you get what I'm saying. Things that aren't as bad as throwing your kid into a fire. How's that? But anyways, you see other things listed here in which Israel could find themselves while they're waiting for this new prophet to be revealed or as they're going through a hard time. They're getting ready to go to war. Full-on war all the way through the land. It's real easy for them to blend those religious practices and also to maybe in hopes of avoiding that conflict, to start to look a little bit like their neighbors. And, look, and God is warning them here, the very reason why I'm judging these people, the very reason why I'm pushing them out of the land is because of these practices that they're doing. So I don't want you going anywhere near that stuff. I don't want you looking anything like that. You will be distinct. You will be separate. And so starting in verse 15, we see the promise that is basically a prophecy for Jesus Christ. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Herob on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die." And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Presumptuously? You need to be afraid of him. Or you need not be afraid of him. Sorry. And so we see a long kind of introduction, and that last passage there I think causes people to lose focus because we end up using this as a judgment for identifying false prophets, which is very true and very valid. But the first part, probably 15 through 20, that's where the meat of this passage is because this is a prophecy concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. We know that Moses has a replacement. Joshua comes in and replaces him as a leader, leads the war band. Afterwards, we have judges that show up and appear. After that, we have prophets that show up and appear. Some of them are kings. But none of them are able to basically use the title, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. No one, none of them could, could profess to be on the same level of Moses. And so they were always kind of a 
an imitation of what they were waiting for and what they were looking for. But then when we look at the New Testament and we look at Acts 3.22, Peter, just after he gave his famous sermon in which the Holy Spirit fell, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him and everything he will say to you. And everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. He made that statement quoting this passage in justification of proving Jesus was the way to our Messiah. Stephen, when he was about to be stoned, he said in Acts 7.37, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, talking about Jesus, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Again, quoting this passage. And John, when Philip was looking for Nathaniel to tell him about Jesus, he says to him, We had found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. A little side note there. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth, and that's where Nathaniel replies famously, is anything good ever came from Nazareth? And we can answer, yeah, Jesus. And then also in uh, John six fourteen through 15, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people say, this really is the prophet who was to come into the world and that recognition was a direct tie to this prophecy in Deuteronomy. The weighted prophet, the expected prophet that was to come in the same likeness of Moses and provide that same relationship from the people to God that Moses provided. And we know now that Jesus did it even more so or even better than Moses. But if we just look at a quick summary of who Moses was and what he did for the people of Israel, is that he stood as an intermediary between the people and God. The people, again, what we read here in uh, verse 16 when he says, when the assembly said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire anymore lest I die. The people feared God, and Moses was the representative that was capable of approaching him and then going to the people and bringing the message directly from God to the people. But then we also see Moses had a way of reflecting the glory of God, so much so that he had to wear a veil. The people couldn't look upon him after he spoke with God. And so we see that in a subtle way, Moses was a reflection of the glory of God to the people of Israel. And then when we look at the final ministry of Jesus Christ, we see a very similar or even better, I don't want to say similar, I want to say an even better outcome. Almost to the fact to where, yes, to fulfill the prophecy Jesus had to be like Moses, but knowing what we know now, it's better to say Moses was like Jesus, or a, a small comparison to what Jesus would be, because as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, once again, no longer does, do we have to wait on an individual to approach us and give us the word of God, but now we can approach the, th the throne boldly 
and approach the Father boldly, knowing that the forgiveness that Christ offered allows us access to that throne. And when we're talking about the glory of God, again, just recently we went over it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 on Sunday morning, where Moses had to wear that veil over his face to basically limit the glory that could be understood or perceived by the people, we are now able to approach him unveiled. And as the Bible says, where 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, that we are now able to receive and perceive the full glory of God without a restriction, without a veil. And that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the the glory of God. And so that leads us into our whole discussion on leadership that we've had to go over the last couple of weeks where we've talked about kings, we've talked about priests, we've talked about prophets, and realizing that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all three of those functions and offices for us. He is our king. He introduces us into the kingdom of heaven. We become his people, his subjects, doing his work. He was our priest. He, he basically made the sacrifice on our behalf in which he asked God for a propitiation for our sins. If you don't know what propitiation means, it means that he basically approached God and offered a sacrifice to prevent the wrath of God from falling on us. And then as our prophet, he speaks the truth in guiding the people of God into that eternal promised land that everything in the scriptures before that was just an allusion to. And so Cody, last week, he talked about that relationship that we should seek in response to not necessarily being obedient to the law, but the relationship being more important for us as a people of God. And likewise, I say the same thing. We have been given through the prophet, the one that came like Moses, through his example, we have been given full access to the forgiveness to the love, and to the peace of God. And so if you don't know that, or you're not familiar with that, or that sounds foreign to you, or that sounds weird to you, that is called the gospel message. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you may avoid the coming wrath of your sins and you can have an eternal relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He did that for you, seeking a relationship with you. So if you don't have that relationship, good news, you're in a place to fix that. But that being said, as Christians, we should still be striving. Striving is a bad word. 
That means working. We should still be longing for that relationship with our king, our prophet, and our priest through the recognition of what he's done through us historically speaking, spiritually, and emotionally. And that that relationship is available to you on a deeper level, whether you're a Christian today or you've been a Christian for, we got some old timers in here, 70 years, 100 years, we getting that far? But if you've been a Christian for a long time, And so, that being said, we are available up here to pray with you, to partner with you, to move alongside of you as you seek that relationship. Because at the end of the day, we see the failure that Israel became. And I think that they were always destined to be a failure. They were always supposed to be a case study in what it looks like when men try to seek their own righteousness and their own salvation. Now we know that these priests that were raised up on behalf to bring the people closer to God the prophets that were to share the words of God with the people, they were all just an illusion to basically the, what the real design was always meant to be. One-on-one relationship on a personal level through the Holy Spirit, through the sacrifice of the Son, with God the Father, God the Son, in the Holy Spirit. And now we are that temple, we are that promised land that was promised. And so, looking at these illusions, we can get hints and we can get ideas on how we're supposed to act today as Christians. It gives us, there's still very valuable information in here. It's still the divine word of God. It's still inspired. But it all points to what we're experiencing now as a Christian. And it points to a bigger and more complete revelation that came through Jesus Christ. So the invitation is open up here. When we're done, I'm going to pray in a second here and I'm going to invite Mark back up to close us out in worship. But the invitation's open. I'll be up here. I see Cody over there. I see some elders scattered in here. Doug might be up here or around. Come to us. This is what we were called to do. This is what we were chosen by God to do. Pray with you and walk with you. As A, you seek that initial step into a relationship with Jesus Christ, or B, as you may feel a little stalled. Maybe you feel like you've violated the middle part of this passage where you 
backslidden a little bit, and you aren't, you're not as distinct as what you feel like you should be as the living temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're here. Let's close in prayer. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your continual reminder of who you are, and not only in our daily lives through our personal experience, but through the word of God, we see continually the fullness of what you've done for us and what you've provided for us and the relationship that is available to us through only your sacrifice. Nothing we've done to earn it, nothing we've done to deserve it, Lord. And so we thank you so much for that. We pray that you remind us that we are a distinct people. We pray that you remind us to respect the calling that you put on people's lives. And then finally, we pray that on a daily basis, you allow us to see the fullness of your ministry as king, priest, and prophet. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.